Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. Welcome to Gray Matters, the podcast where we unpack how medical management is rarely black or white. I'm Jason Freed, and I'm a hematologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I'm Allie Trainer, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Harvard Combined Program at MGH and Beth Israel Deaconess. So Jason, I had this case during my residency that I still think about because we made what seemed like an appropriate decision, but it had a really unexpected outcome. Ooh, what happened? It started like any other Monday morning in the ICU, long rounds, dehydration. Oof, that's why I didn't go into critical care. (laughs) Yeah, you know, every field has its pros and cons, but yeah, so I met her when she was in the ICU, but she was one of those patients that we see all the time who's chronically ill and comes into the hospital for one thing but then ends up having multiple other issues while she's in the hospital. I know what you mean. So this patient was a woman in her 50s, had cirrhosis from ongoing alcohol use, and initially came in actually because of a 20-pound unintentional weight loss. So she was on the general medicine service, and while they were working her up for her weight loss, she was found to have portal hypertension with ascites, a pleural effusion, and an AKI. And so she was getting treatment and workup for all of these when she developed this massive variceal bleed. So they tried to do an EGD and banding, but there was just too much bleeding and they were unsuccessful. So she was intubated for airway protection and went to IR for an emergent tips. Wow. She sounds very sick. Can we go back to the beginning for a second though? Because one thing that strikes me here is that she came in with weight loss. And usually people with portal hypertension and ascites come in with weight gain. It makes me wonder if something else is going on here. Definitely. I mean, her weight loss was really confusing because like you said, when we typically think of patients with cirrhosis, they're coming in with volume overload. So it wasn't really clear. But by the time I met her in the ICU, you know, she had had a successful tips and her bleeding had resolved. But now the puzzling part was that she had these persistent fevers despite being started on antibiotics on the floor. Fevers? while on antibiotics is my least favorite problem. Right? So at this point, you know, she's hypotensive on low-dose vasopressors, has this mild white count elevation and these persistent fevers. And they hadn't been able to find an infectious source yet, but at that point she had been on broad-spectrum antibiotics for three days without any improvement in her clinical status or fevers. So I'm really curious about your thoughts on this because I know that you are constantly dealing with fevers in your neutropenic patients on the bone marrow transplant service. For us, we're constantly asking the question, are they febrile because of their disease, i.e. B symptoms from lymphoma, or febrile from infection, or febrile because of a weird drug reaction? And sometimes it's easy to tell, but most often it's hard. I struggle with this too. I think we all do. And I really don't want to go down the whole fever of unknown origin rabbit hole because at this point, really our two main concerns were occult infection versus drug fever. So Again, she's been on antibiotics for about three to four days, has not 
really had any improvement with this treatment, but her fevers, hypotension, leukocytosis, they really seem like sepsis. So how do we tease out sepsis versus drug fever? It's so complicated. And, and, and she's a perfect example of even added layers of complexity, right? Because she's a cirrhotic patient. Um, and therefore we know her to be deeply immunocompromised. And so we're already worried about some more serious infections and opportunistic infections that can arise in her. You know, it sounds like people are trying to put together a picture of fevers, low blood pressure, um, and a weight count and thinking, okay, all those things go together as sepsis. Um, and it's hard to look away from that, but it's super important to think about the other things that could be going on. That was Dr. Wendy Stad from the Infectious Disease Division at BIDMC. And, you know, it was tough at this point. She didn't have any evidence of SBP on a paracentesis. Her chest x-ray still showed that pleural effusion, but it had already been sampled and had no evidence of infection. So she really didn't have any obvious source, but she's on these broad spectrum antibiotics and she's still having these fevers. This sounds like every day on the leukemia service. (laughs) Yeah. So at this point, we felt a little bit stuck. And again, we're thinking maybe drug fever, or maybe there's still an infection that we just haven't found yet. I mean, we have great tests in the hospital to look for infection. Um, And usually by the time they're in the ICU and they're this sick, a lot of that very complete workup has taken place. You know, the blood cultures, the urine cultures, the chest imaging, it's all been done. The body imaging, the the torso CT, you know, a lot has been done to look for a source of infection. And so, you know, it's really, usually if there is a source of infection there that is serving as a sepsis source, it's not that hard to find. Um, and so typically we're going to find it. And so if the, ser- if the search has been done thoroughly and there hasn't been an answer found, that is absolutely a situation where you should start opening your mind to think about these non-infection kind of mimics that can happen, one of which is a drug fever. That point speaks to me a lot. If there's an infection that could produce sepsis, it would be very likely to be found by the methods we have. I agree. It makes so much sense when she says it, but in the moment, it is so hard to pull myself away from thinking that it must be sepsis. And I often get really worried about stopping the antibiotics because even if I haven't found an infectious source, there's still this nagging in the back of my mind that what if I did miss something and stopping the antibiotics could be harmful. So I asked Dr. Stad and her big takeaway is to think about your patient's trajectory and does it fit with what we'd expect from a typical infectious time course? In the situation where you've started treating somebody and maybe they got a little bit better from the infection that they had, um, that you were treating, and then suddenly they start to take a turn for the worse and maybe the fever comes back or the white count that was going down, it starts to go up a little bit again. Um, but overall, they kind of look stable and you're doing an additional search and you're not finding anything. That's kind of a situation where I start to think about it. Maybe it's the patient with the fever and the white count, but actually they kind of look clinically a little bit better than I would expect them to look if they had an infection that was getting worse over time. That's another setting where I might think about it. So that time course didn't really fit with my patient because if anything, she was doing a little bit worse. Again, she's now in the ICU, she's on pressors. So then I start looking at her med list and I'm wondering which medications should I be focusing on as culprits for drug fevers? 
So there are a lot of different drug classes that can cause drug fever. Among the antimicrobials, the most likely drugs to cause drug fever are by far the beta-lactam drugs, and it's the whole class. It's penicillin, cephalosporins, carbapenems, any of them can cause drug fever, and it's way more likely than a lot of the other classes. Some of the tetracyclines can cause drug fever as well, like minocycline, um, but generally those are the ones much more likely to do it than others. And so knowing that also increases the suspicion if somebody happens to be on it. I never forget the anti-epileptic drugs because that's another class of drugs that's very commonly associated with drug fever, phenytoin, some of the older anti-epileptics. Okay, so it sounds like all beta-lactam should be on our radar for drug fevers and didn't know about the older anti-epileptics. Dr. Stead also had some concrete signs to look out for that aren't present in every patient with drug fever, but if they are, they can be helpful. Generally, you'll have a lot of other information at the tip of your fingers that might help guide you toward drug fever or drug reaction as opposed to infection. And so those would be things like looking for um, a rash because sometimes these are hypersensitivity reactions. And so probably in about a third or more of cases, you might find some kind of a rash there that's going to help you. Or maybe you'll find an eosinophilia. You know, maybe the team has seen that leukocytosis in the CBC, but they haven't thought to send a diff for the last week. And you say, hey, maybe you should add a diff to the next white count. And suddenly you realize, oh, there's 18% eosinophils there. Um, and that's what the white count of 20 was all about. And that sends you down a completely different road. Um, maybe the LFTs are climbing or they've got a little bit of a new AKI, which, you know, you've been explaining away from their hypotension, uh, but maybe they're having some end organ manifestations of a more serious drug type reaction. Okay. So did any of the things Dr. Stead mentioned come into play? Like, did she have any other signs that this could be a drug fever as opposed to sepsis? So she was on meropenem, which is a beta-lactam. She was not on any anti-epileptics. And in terms of other things that are associated with drug fevers, I mean... She had a mild transaminitis. Her bilirubin was mildly up, but she has cirrhosis. She had no eosinophilia and she didn't have a rash. So I'm really still torn between drug fever and sepsis. Yeah, it does not sound like a slam dunk for drug fever. Yeah, so we still kept her on meropenem thinking that's the safest route, but I wanted to share with you something really powerful that Dr. Stead had to say about when you're considering drug fever. If I'm starting to consider the diagnosis and no other source of occult sepsis has been found, then it's it's wrong not to think about stopping antibiotics in that setting because you're starting to really think that you are truly causing the patient dangerous toxicity um, with the drugs that you're giving. And I think... You know, we see antibiotics rescue people so often that we tend to, even among those of us who have seen tons of antibiotic reactions and toxicities, I think we still think of them as such a powerful weapon to jump in and save patients' lives that we sometimes forget how dangerous they can be too. And so I think you really do have to keep your mind open to how incredibly dangerous and toxic these medications can be as well. And if you haven't found a reason for which you're giving them, then you should be thinking about peeling them back. Wow. I mean, with that framing, I am worried we're potentially doing more harm than good with keeping the antibiotics in. But she is also a patient with cirrhosis in the ICU on vasopressors. So even though it seems like we should have found an infectious source by now, I'm still worried that we're treating something and that stopping antibiotics could be harmful. So I guess I honestly don't know. I I might think of at least switching to a new antibiotic class so that I address the toxicity, but I'm still treating infection. 
I guess one of the possible outs that people can have in this situation too, Allie, would be that if you are truly worried that you're missing some occult source of sepsis and you feel like you cannot stop some kind of empiric antimicrobial coverage, then at the very least, you should be thinking about switching and pivoting to other antimicrobials that would not potentially share the same mechanisms of hypersensitivity. So if they're on the beta-lactam and the vanco, you know, switch them to something else that is not of those classes that might offer similar coverage for the things that you think you're treating infection-wise, um, but also removing that potential driver of the toxic reaction. So just like you said, you know, if you really can't decide drug fever, sepsis, then switching to another antibiotic class can be a good option. So is that what you ended up doing for her? Not exactly. So um, Dr. Stead did say that another option to avoid these endless antibiotic courses is to come up with an empiric course based on your most likely source. You know, we had trouble with the most likely source part, but ended up deciding on going with just one week of empiric antibiotics. Okay, so I feel like I have a good handle now on the concept of drug fever versus sepsis, but can you remind me again what else was going on with her? She sounded like she was pretty sick, and I want to make sure I have the full picture. Yeah, good point. So there was a lot going on. So her fever, we've really kind of beat to death here, but so she was declining at home for what sounds like several weeks. She's now three weeks into her hospitalization and one week into her ICU stay with decompensated cirrhosis on vasopressors, persistent fevers, just had a bad variceal bleed. And she was still intubated because of her altered mental status. Wait, how are you even assessing her mental status? I thought you said she was intubated. Yeah, great question. Um, Because we usually do have our intubated patients on sedation, but she was so obtunded and not interactive that she actually wasn't requiring any sedation. Oh, so what were you guys thinking for the altered mental status? So we did the standard workup of altered mental status, you know, scanned her head, EEG, treated her hepatic encephalopathy, the whole nine yards. And then we raise the possibility of antibiotic-associated neurotoxicity. And I feel like this always gets raised on rounds, but then, I don't know, I feel like I, I don't know what to do about it or how to suss out if this really is antibiotic-associated neurotoxicity. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this for our second deep dive. Allie, I know you said she was on miropenem, but I feel like the first antibiotic that comes to mind when we talk about antibiotic-associated neurotoxicity, for me, is cefepime. I think what's important to remember when you start to go down the cefepime rabbit hole is that um, that all beta-lactams can cause mental status changes and cephalopathy. That is not unique to cefepime at all. Um, we know that penicillins do it. We know that cephalosporins do it. Probably the fourth-generation cephalosporins like cefepime more than the others, but we know they do it, and we know that the carbapenems do it. Imipenem definitely more than the others, but then any of them can do it. Okay, so we know she's on miropenem, which is a beta-lactam, could be a culprit for neurotoxicity. I agree, but I still don't have a clear idea for when to suspect beta-lactam neurotoxicity. And basically, the spectrum of kind of CNS toxicity that you can get from cefepime is anything from just kind of global mental status change and cephalopathy. Often myoclonus is described for reasons that I don't think are very clear, and then non-convulsive status epilepticus. I did not realize just how broad the spectrum actually is. <laughs> broad the spectrum. <laughs> but on top of that, what we're thinking of it, and think about all the times I've considered cefepime neurotoxicity. It's never clear cut because if a patient is started on cefepime, by definition, there's a lot going on with them, a lot going in, a lot going out. So it's never as clear cut as 
oh, we started Cefepim two days ago. They got altered. We stopped it. They got better. Case closed. But what's been very characteristic of all of the reports of cefepime neurotoxicity so far is that there is a very particular group of patients in whom it seems to arise. And those are older patients, patients who have underlying renal problems where they're not metabolizing the cefepime as they should and often have not been dose reduced relative to their degree of kidney um, insufficiency. Um, and patients with prior underlying CNS disease to begin with. So, you know, that poor substrate that probably makes them at more risk for a complication like this. So it seems like in the exact situations where it's really hard to tell, fluctuating renal function, older patients with a lot of other things going on, the ones where it's the hardest to tell, those are the ones that are the most at risk for antibiotic-associated neurotoxicity. Yeah, so to recap, we know that antibiotic neurotoxicity can happen with any of the beta-lactams, and the presentation can be super broad. We should do an EEG to look for status epilepticus, and we can also look for risk factors like older age, renal insufficiency, and underlying CNS disease. So Allie, what happened next? Did you stop the meropenem? Was it causing your fevers? Was it causing the neurotoxicity? (laughs) Well, so we actually didn't really have to decide because her family ended up deciding that they wanted to make her comfort measures only. Oh gosh, she's going to pass away. Yeah. I mean, she had been so sick for so many days and her family really recognized that. I don't know how to say this, and it's not the most important in the grand scheme of things, but the medical detective in me still does really want to know if this was drug fever or neurotoxicity. We spent 15 minutes learning about all these interesting things and I'm just curious what happened to her. So (laughs) there's more to the story. So what ended up happening was that the family requests that we wait a few days before we extubate her and stop her pressors because they wanted to wait for some family members from out of state to arrive and come say goodbye. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but frequently we keep people on life support for family to say goodbye. So what happened over those couple of days? Well, so it just so happened that her one-week antibiotic course ends the same day that we have the conversation with her family. But then we're waiting a few days for people from out of state to come. And while we're waiting, her fevers resolve. She comes off the vasopressors and she actually wakes up. She woke up? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it was amazing, but it also gave me this kind of sickening feeling. Wait, what do you mean? Well, I just can't help but wonder that if we were not waiting for her family, we would have just stopped her pressors, terminally extubated her while she was still dependent on both of those. And she probably would have died. Totally. That's really heavy. But I mean, she woke up, but what was her melt score? 40? So she survived the ICU, but I mean, she's so sick. Statistically, if she makes it out of the hospital, she probably has another variceal bleed and dies within a few months. Yeah. So you would think that, but actually, no. I mean, I took care of her several years ago now and she is still alive. I actually still check her a few times a year to keep myself humble. And the last time I checked a few weeks ago, she was alive, doing well, living independently, actually back at work. And I think that's why, you know, this case really does still haunt me because I mean, what if there are other patients that I'm making comfort measures who maybe would have lived if we haven't done that? I mean, I don't know, but have you ever had something like this happen with one of your patients before? Whoa, not that I'm aware of, but now that I'm thinking about it, that's the problem, right? Maybe I did make someone CMO who might have lived, but I won't know because they passed away when we made them CMO. Yeah, I mean, that's why I still think about this case. I'm so glad she's alive, but it makes me wonder about all the other patients that I've taken care of and made CMO. Yeah, it makes me wonder which of my patients 
if they only had family who had to travel across the country and we had to wait an extra day or two, might have lived because they got an extra chance to unexpectedly recover. Totally. It's extremely unsettling. In pretty much every other medical decision we make, we know there's going to be a miss rate. And for each, we kind of accept what that miss rate is. Like, you can't look for aortic dissection in every single person who has chest pain. But with this, like, how do you decide on an acceptable miss rate for making someone comfort measures when they might have a small chance of living a quality life if you didn't? Yeah, it's it's tough. So we definitely need some expert help here. So for our final deep dive, I reached out to Dr. Emmy Rubin at MGH, who's a pulmonary and critical care attending who also does ethics consults and research in ethics. So I asked her to help us think through this idea of what is an acceptable miss rate for making someone comfort measures only. So I think to me, the, the representation of what you're talking about with sort of a number needed to treat or a number needed to harm or a miss rate um, comes into play often when we decide not to do things in the first place. So when we decide not to intubate somebody, right, and when they're when they're failing, not to send them to the ICU, not to put them on ECMO, not to do X, you know, put them on dialysis, whatever it might be, there are times when we will have been wrong and and somebody could have survived with very intensive therapy. I think the problem is if the and I think about this very very often because this comes into play you know, in many things that I do, I think if we, if absolute certainty is the threshold, we will do way too much for way too many people. So I hear that, but then how do you deprive people of the chance? Like, how do we make those decisions? You know me, I love calculating probabilities to help make medical decisions. It seems pretty challenging to do in this scenario. I mean, I'm going to try anyways, but If there's a one in a hundred chance that aggressive care is going to benefit a certain type of patient, it means that 99 people got over aggressive care they wouldn't have wanted. But were they really harmed? I mean, they were going to die anyways. So I feel like in order to not treat all 100 of those patients aggressively to save the one, I feel like you have to believe you've subjected those 99 to a fate worse than death. Yeah, it's tough because, I mean, I want to save people, but I also don't want to cause suffering either. So I really struggle with that balance. Right. So you think about the, 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 the aggregate harms of, of sort of either approach, right? The t- approach we tend to take is that if there's any chance at all and somebody wants to go to an ICU, for example, or be put on a breathing machine, we do it. As a result, I think we do a lot. We do a lot of very aggressive things that don't help. A lot of that comes from this sense that I share and that is very common and, and understandable that we don't want to leave life on the table, right? We don't want to not save somebody who could have been saved. And what we don't think, because that feels like the worst thing. There are also other bad things, which are, you know, treating a lot of people very aggressively who wouldn't have wanted to be treated that way if they weren't going to get better. And there is no way to get that exactly right. I guess that's comforting because then you just, I mean, you do the best you can to prognosticate based upon data and experience But at the same time, it is still kind of troubling that I'll never perfectly decide who should be CMO or DNR, DNI. I think people get bogged down in designations that are in a medical record like comfort measures or DNR, DNI. So when I think about these things, I think about them in terms of what is the plan of action for this patient as opposed to necessarily sort of what's the code status. This is helpful because when we made her comfort measures, in my mind, that meant she was going to die. Yeah, I mean, that's what CMO means to me. Judging by what happened, which was she got better to everyone's sort of surprise and, you know, and 
delight, I, I assume, in her family. And, and for her, she got better against all that. So making her quote unquote CMO didn't actually affect her ability to get better. It affected the way you thought in your mind that you had decided she she would likely die. I really appreciated her being so blunt with me about my incorrect framing around what CMO actually means. So Ali, how has this case affected your practice? Are you less likely to make someone CMO now? Not necessarily. I mean, I think a big takeaway for me is really not to equate CMO with death, but rather it's a plan where certain outcomes might be more likely, but we really do need to be open to anything happening. But I think I'm still struggling with this idea of CMO potentially being wrong in this case. I guess the first thing I would say is to try to avoid thinking about it as right or wrong based on what turns out to have happened. When you make a decision like designating her code status as CMO, and then she turns out to live for for multiple more more years, the decision that you made at the time feels like it was the wrong decision. That is a well-known sort of cognitive bias where whatever happens afterwards um, affects how you think about that decision at the time. To be honest, I, I think I used my interview with Dr. Rubin a little like a therapy session to try and learn and move forward from this case because I needed a lot of reassurance to get past this idea that making her CMO was wrong. You didn't snow her with medications. You didn't prevent her from getting better. I think the thing that you feel like is wrong is that it was presented as if it was pretty black and white when maybe it wasn't. I think that really hit the nail on the head, which is that I want things to be black and white because I want to do the right thing for my patients. But as we've talked about, you know, this being gray matters and all, things in medicine are rarely black and white, but it just feels a heck of a lot harder when we're talking about life or death scenarios. But it's very hard. I mean, there's a lot of pressure in medicine to always sort of feel like you're getting everything right. And it's a human endeavor. You're not going to get everything right every time, which again, just to come back to this is why I really encourage people to get groups of colleagues together in difficult situations and just check your own assumptions um, because people bring their own assumptions and their own recency bias in cases that they just saw in both directions to all of these situations. And so I think you need to give yourself a break, realize that we're you know human beings trying to do this and just try to continuously improve how you're doing these things. So Ali, you describe it's been kind of like therapy with Dr. Rubin. Does this case still haunt you? Well, I do chart check her every three months like a crazy person. So I guess in some senses, yes. But I think how I've thought about this has really changed. I mean, when I was a resident, I was checking her chart, probably in a pathologic way, just really feeling so guilty. Allie, that sounds awful. What would make you keep going back? Well, I think now when I look back, I'm looking back more with a sense of humility and I'm looking just to be amazed and grateful that she's still doing okay. You know, I'm reading this book right now, The Power of Regret by Dan Pink. And one of the things that it taught me was that verbalizing regrets out loud with someone is one of the best ways to diminish some of the emotion involved. And it helps you intellectualize the experience to decide what positives you can take away from it. That makes a lot of sense because it feels a heck of a lot better chatting with you than doing chart checks on her alone. So Allie, I know I seem to be fixated on this, but when you think back, do you think it was the antibiotics that were causing her fevers and encephalopathy and she got better because her antibiotics were stopped? <laughs> you just cannot let this one go. Um, but I guess we'll never fully know, but I do think that could have been part of it. Yeah. And I guess the only way we would know is if she ever had to be rechallenged with Miropenem, and thankfully she has not needed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe at this point we should recap what we learned with our deep dives. Let's do it. 
So I'm going to let you start with the deep dive on drug fever versus sepsis since this bothers you so much um, and comes up all the time on bone marrow transplant patients. Okay. Dr. Stead pointed out that an infection causing sepsis to the point of fever, shock, etc., it really shouldn't be that hard to find. So if you can't find the infection, you're really obligated to start thinking about other causes of fevers, like drug fever, because these drugs can be pretty toxic, as this case made very clear. And finally, if you really can't decide if this is sepsis or a drug fever from antibiotics, consider switching to a new class of antibiotics. We also talked about neurotoxicity from antibiotics and how cefepime is the one that most of us think of first, but you can really get neurotoxicity with any of the beta-lactams. And neurotoxicity can range from myoclonus to reduced consciousness or confusion, all the way up to non-convulsive status epilepticus. And some risk factors for developing neurotoxicity include patients who are older, have renal impairment, or who have cognitive dysfunction at baseline. And what were your takeaways from talking with Dr. Rubin? Yeah, I think a big one for me was to think of the goals of care as more of a plan of action rather than the expected outcome. So I'm going to really try to stop thinking of making someone comfort measures only as a transition to death. And think of it really like the name says. So focusing on their comfort and then just allowing for whatever outcome happens. And finally, like we're doing here, talk to your colleagues, debrief, especially when you feel regret about a decision you made. And yes, give yourself feedback and follow up on how patients are doing, but don't punish yourself by checking the EMR. Jason, thank you so much for talking through this case with me. Anytime, but no more drug fevers, please. And that is a wrap for today. We also love going through other cases. So if you have a case that you want to bring to Gray Matters, please let us know. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you do have a case that you'd like to bring on the air, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Thank you to Doc Shpatia for the audio editing. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.